Rider is the first hardware social wallet in the crypto space. If you don't recognize that voice, that is Marvin Jansen. That's the guest we have on the show today. And uh, yeah, but first, what is up, you beautiful people? Welcome back to the Build on Bitcoin podcast. We'll cover everything going on in the Stacks ecosystem. I am your humble host, Jake Blockchain. You can see me on the interwebs under that name pretty much everywhere. And yeah, today we have Marvin on the show. And if you're not familiar with Marvin, he was previously the technical lead at the Stacks Foundation. And now he currently spends his time split between two places mainly. One is working at Rider, which is creating the world's first crypto hardware social wallet that also, you know, it just looks beautiful, handles all these different things like decentralized identity, um, handling signing, all these different aspects of using a crypto wallet out in public. And then second, he spent a lot of his time at a group called the Clarity Innovation Lab, which is put together with Peter from Residio, and they're pushing the edge cases and exploring the depths of what you can do with the programming language that is Clarity. So we talk about a ton. We talk about how, uh, how he got into coding and how long he has been coding. Does he have any experience in Solidity and Clarity? Um, some of the nuances around what you can and can't build in Clarity versus Solidity, or if that's even true, I guess is more the accurate answer. Um, and a ton of other topics. We cover what Ryder is building. We cover how to get into, uh, you know, there's this tension online right now I see where uh, people just think they can go be self-taught and do everything they need, not need a CS degree. And I ask them if that's really true or is there some value having a CS degree, especially in the Web3 space? Ton of other topics. So great conversation. And yeah, so we'll, we'll dive into it in just a sec. But first, let me give a quick shout out to my sponsor, the Stacks Foundation. So if you're building on Stacks, you're going to be using Clarity. It's just it's what you do when you're here. And so if you're experienced and maybe want to port something over after hearing what we got going on over here, uh, a good place to start is stacks.org slash grants. Uh, there's some resources there where you can either apply for getting some funding but also you can get some feedback on, uh, is this needed? How might I go about this? So there's some resources for you. If you're newer or at an intermediate level and you want to learn Clarity, the best place to go is start.stacks.org. They put together this website. It's a five-step process to take you from step one, being an absolute noob at coding, you've never done any coding at all, to step five, where you're somewhat a Clarity Ninja you know what you're doing and you're ready to potentially get some funding from the grants program, perhaps, and build something that everyone can use. So uh, start.stacks.org if you want to learn clarity specifically and stacks.org slash grants if you're more advanced and maybe you just want to help bring the Bitcoin future to bear on Stacks. So with that, let's dive in to this fantastic conversation with Marvin Jansen the co-founder of Rager. Welcome to Built on Bitcoin. Marvin, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing pretty well. It's a very sunny day here in Singapore. How are you? 
I am fantastic. It's also been a beautifully sunny day in Portland, although we were just talking offline and we're pretty much at different ends of the spectrum. It's your morning right now. I'm going to go to bed after this. So you're officially the latest podcast guest uh, I've had. So you have that, you have that, that uh, crown to claim. So congrats. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, crypto never sleeps, right? That's right. Which it's fully global. Uh, <laughs> there's a ton to talk about. You super interesting guy. I, when I first got into Stacks, you know, you see Friedger, you hear a little about Dan, but then Marvin pops up pretty quickly. You were doing Clarity Universe stuff and you're at the foundation. And first question, how old are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm still 30. 30? Yep. Okay. You're like me. We both look younger than our age. I'm 33. Mm-hmm. And everyone, I was always like, man, this dude's like a child prodigies coding his face off like he, he just he yeah, people, the keyboard and, and creates beautiful things yeah people tend to be a little little shocked sometimes when they hear my age but uh you know what can you do about it that's right just this guy swim in the fountain of youth well uh <laughs> interesting so i'm curious then because you have a pretty technical background you've done quite a few different things around stacks when did you start coding it's a good question. If you want to say like at what age did I start coding, that must have been when I was still really young. I would want to guess like maybe 13 or 14 years old. Maybe 13, okay. yeah. Um, and you were doing the basic kind of like HTML, CSS, like basic hacking around? Um, I actually didn't get started with web stuff. I think I got started with like uh, something like game development related. I think Unreal Engine was something that I was interested in and basically taught myself just by playing around with it. There wasn't any course that I could follow at the time or at least not that I could find. And uh, yeah, just like figuring out how it all works, how it all goes together, just uh, honestly, just reading it. Maybe like how a child would learn a new language. That's kind of how I was learning how to program. So (laughs) I've come a long way since then. (laughs) For sure. Did you you go to college and take a computer science degree? Yeah, I did. I did eventually get to that. Yes, yes. Okay, got it. Yeah. it's funny part of that way that i got to stacks was i went from being a grocery store person to wanting to become a developer which is kind of how i got introduced to you was because I, I was in the first cohort of clarity universe and i was like cool i'm gonna become a dev web3 super exciting and there's like this push and pull online of um the cs degree is dead is kind of how i would view it like in, in web3 with a lot of gumption and curiosity and just time at the keyboard you can pretty much not need any of that and just go straight to building. Do you think that's a fair assessment if you have what it takes? I think maybe you can say that about the job of programming in general or anything programming related. I, I think you know there's a lot of self-taught people that are, are truly amazing at what they do. Would I go as far and say like computer science is dead as a degree? Maybe not because you do get some of the, the the fundamentals, some foundational stuff that some people might not get to, you know, so so you have some people that want to get into web development and they'll start doing you know, HTML courses and then get into some server-side language and doing things, but then they miss some of the more foundational stuff, you know, like how, how the innards of the computer, uh, maybe some memory management stuff, these, these kinds of things, even if you don't work with it, I think it's very useful to know sort of... Um, what a, a computer would be doing on a bit of a lower level. And I say that with the footnote that I also didn't get too much of that when I was in my first university program. So some of that stuff, I also just dove into myself because I wanted to understand like, hey, if I make the same thing in C instead of some very high level language, how is that different? 
and uh, and and that's really benefiting me now with with the current venture that that we're doing that I'm sure we're going to get into later. Very cool. Okay, so hmm, I think we're going to dance around a little bit here, but maybe first to help me give me an overview. What is it that you currently do? What are all the things that you have your hands in around the ecosystem of what you're building? Yeah, so I've, I've moved around a little bit. As you know, I was until recently technically at the Stack Foundation. So there I was helping with integration work, but also Clarity Universe, as you mentioned, and a few other things. I'm not doing that anymore. So right now, uh, I'm actually doing a residency with Mike, who you might know from Residio. And we're doing something called the Clarity Innovation Lab. And what we're trying to do there is push the boundaries of what is possible in Clarity. So push the boundaries of Clarity smart contracts and, and see how we can utilize the language to the fullest extent, You know, see what kind of edge cases exist. And with that, we're doing a few different things. So there's a few SIPs that we're handling. There's a semi-fungible token standard that we've been working on. We have SIP 18, the signed structured data or the signed message standard that we've been working on that was recently also integrated by Hero, which I think is very important from the ecosystem. Um, and then there's a few other projects that we're also working on, the, the, the largest of which right now is the executive DAO and the ecosystem uh, DAO. So really exploring like how can we create a very versatile DAO using Clarity and really make use of the language features that Clarity has. So that's the Clarity Innovation Lab. And of course, next to that, the biggest thing is working on the writer project. So we're building a hardware wallet that is focused on you, yourself, your decentralized identity, you know, how you are towards the rest of the world and, and sort of taking uh, all this, this crypto stuff that for now has been very digital and, and very online and try to bring that actually into your life so that you can use crypto face-to-face, -face, you can use it with your friends, right? And, and, and give that same experience where you, you go to a point of sale unit, you have your Apple Pay, on your phone, you can just tap to pay, you know, that, that same kind of feeling. Uh, okay. I want to backtrack a second then, because one of the interesting themes about people that are in stacks is they have, they've been here a while and they have very high conviction in the project. So I'm curious about your transition. Like how'd you eventually get into stacks? Were you a Bitcoiner first and saw what Blockstack was building? What, what was that journey like for you? So I've been doing stuff with crypto in one way or another since I think 2014. So that's when I started building apps that would interface with a blockchain in some shape or fashion, right? And, and many blockchains have a public API that you can tie into. So, you know, you can build an app that will talk to a blockchain node, uh, like send a transaction or, or read what a transaction status. So I got started with that in, in 2014 in some shape or form. And I've been jumping around to different projects ever since then. So a lot of it was Bitcoin before. And eventually, of course, like, like most people, you're very curious about smart contracts. So I got involved in, in like Ethereum and EVM-based chains and writing smart contracts for that. I first heard about Stacks in 2017. I was taken by, you know, at the time it was called Blockstack. I remember coming across, and I, I don't, I don't know how I came across it, but they had this website up, and they say like prepare for the decentralized internet or something like that, and it had a very nice graphic of of a new kind of browser, and they say you know it's a browser to the decentralized internet, and and you could drop an email and and be notified if there was anything new, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, yeah, that's how I got into Stacks. So I've been following it on and off ever since, and I was just very interested in, in the promise and and sort of the background that they gave. 
And then sometime later, I actually joined the ecosystem and I started out as just a community member and sort of getting a feel for what it's all about. And, you know, once I was there, I realized like what a passionate and good community it is and the people that are behind it, you know, that, that's now Hero and, and Blockstack, uh, the people building this. I was just very impressed by all of that. So uh, yeah, that, that kind of caused me to switch. And then when Stacks uh, 2 came out, I was already working with the foundation and working with Clarity. It was such a big difference from from Solidity that for me it was a no-brainer. You know, nothing against Solidity. I enjoy working in it, and I think knowing some more low-level programming helps with working in Solidity because it's easy to make kind of the same mistakes in Solidity. But um, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. But but Clarity was just such a breath of fresh air that I made that switch and I didn't really look back. That's the basic background. Yeah, I remember. Um... I was scouring, I went through some phase where I was just scouring all the old Stacks YouTube videos, like going way far back to like Muneeb Town Halls, where we just at some random whiteboard talking about things. And if you go far back enough, most of the videos have like 100 views, 150 views. But if you go far back enough, there's this really good, like five minute pitch video that has like 50 million views or something. And it kind of describes the original Blockstack mission. And it just makes you watch that and you're like, okay, I want to like go through a concrete wall right now. Like when Neeb and Ryan are talking and just like, it gets you so fired up for this. This is what the future we're supposed to, to expect. Um, so yeah, I could, I could totally see how being around it. those like 2017 times. It's just like, it's that. And this website you're talking about and the community, just everyone gets locked in. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, that it, it's often so difficult to vet these different projects. There's so many crypto projects, but they just, to me, they really seem like they, they had a very clear goal in mind. They knew what they were doing, you know, a very huge goal, obviously. The design choices just made a lot of sense to me. So I'm like, yeah, I want to know more about this. That's why I joined the community. At the time, I was still doing a lot of Solidity development and working in the EVM sphere. And once I saw that Stacks was picking up Steam and rolling out these features and it was just working well, I just got more excited and, and more convinced that this is something that I really want to spend a lot more time on. You know, there's a big push right now of trying to get more devs to build on stacks. And even more broadly, it's trying to get Web2 devs to come with Web3. And so there's like these little baskets of, there's these big pools of people with potential. And they're very smart. <laughs> we're trying to get them in these smaller buckets that we're trying to expand. And I'm curious from your experience, maybe first give us a brief overview of Clarity in your perspective, but then maybe you can dovetail it into how does it compare to Solidity and Clarity and maybe what you can do and can't do, like the, the different design decisions and limitations? Sure. So if I can summarize Clarity in my personal words, Clarity, first of all, is an interpreted language. It's not a compiled language. So it means that uh, anything you write in Clarity and then post it a blockchain, you post it exactly as it's been written. So if you if you pull it back from a node, you'll see the exact same code with the exact same formatting. Even comments are preserved; like everything is still in there. Whereas if you write something in in uh, something else, like say Solidity, that's compiled to to bytecode. So some of the information is lost in the process, like uh, the naming schedule that you use, the formatting, and all that. Then the other things about Clarity is that apart from it being interpreted, it's also a non-Turing complete language. So it means that there are some things that you cannot do, like you cannot have an unbounded loop, you cannot have recursive functions and all these things. The upside to that is that you can know for sure that whatever function you're going to execute will at some point stop, so it will halt. 
And in computer science, that's a that's a pretty serious topic called the halting problem, right? Like if you execute a program, can you predict that this program is actually going to stop at some point? So with a Turing complete language, uh, you know, that's that's a lot more troublesome than with a non-Turing complete language because you can analyze the call graph. You can know like okay, after this much work, it's it's just done doing what it's doing with this given input. And then next to that, so Clarity also has some properties built into the language that I think are good for smart contracts. If you know anyone that has done anything serious in, in crypto before will have heard of the re-entrancy problem or re-entrancy functions or buffer overflows and underflows, right? So re-entrancy is, is this concept that you can call into a smart contract function that will call into a different contract and a different contract will then call back into that original function and then weird things happen. For example, the first function is supposed to deduct some balance and then call into a different function, but that different function calls back and the balance is deducted again, these kinds of issues. So Clarity doesn't allow re-entrancy on the language level, right? And Clarity doesn't allow uh, an underflow or an overflow on the language level. So if you have a numeric value and you try to subtract you know, more than you can, it will just give you a runtime error, it will just quit. So if you have an unsigned integer, which is a number that kind of go negative, right? If, if that number is, say, is five, and you try to subtract 10, it, it will just refuse to do that and give you a runtime error on the board. Whereas if you do that in Solidity, it will wrap around and turn into a very large number, which is usually not what you want. So this ties into what we were talking about a little bit earlier. If you have newer developers, they might not realize that these kinds of things happen, right? Because if you're writing some sort of function um, or, or you're writing an, uh, an app in JavaScript, if you do the same thing, you do five minus 10, you get just minus five, right? It's kind of intuitive. And that's the way the language is built. But some lower level languages don't work that way. They might not know or not understand why those languages work that way. So Clarity doesn't allow that to begin with. So I think those things taken together, and especially the interpreted parts that you can see the original source code, gives you a very clear understanding and also the ability to uh, independently vet the smart contracts that you're calling into. So you're not calling into, say, basically a black box, right? Because we're all about, uh, we want to have these decentralized apps, right? The smart contracts is not a single entity that controls these. And, and people go to great lengths to say like, okay, we're going to build this decentralized application, right? There's, there's, there's no Google or no, no large company that's controlling this. But then you have these compiled smart contracts that run on, on Ethereum or another EVM chain, and they're black boxes because they're compiled bytecode. The source code is not available. You just have to trust there's not some sort of backdoor in there, right? Which can be really small, just a, a very small function that will subtract or that will um, um, take out funds if a particular caller is calling into that function, right? It can be particularly hard, especially if it's a large project. And of course, they have some solutions for that, right? So if you look at like Etherscan, you can submit contract code there. They will compile it. They will compare the bytecode to see if it's the same, right? You can verify source code, but definitely... Not all projects do that, right? And there's a lot of projects out there that get really hyped up and, and uh, the source code is not available and, and you're just sending your tokens into this black box. You don't know what's happening. So I, I think that's one of the biggest features that I like about Clarity. You mentioned unbounded loops, recursion, re-entrancy. And I can intuitively, although I don't fully understand it, get why these other things can attack, open up attack surfaces. But... Also, on the positive side, what is it? Is there is there things with recursion or unbounded loops where you can build things on Solidity or an EVM chain that you currently can't do because of the way that Clarity is structured? Um, 
Well, before I get into that question, I'll just address what you said before that. So I would say having unbounded loops and the sort of features that you have in EVM definitely make it easier to write certain smart contracts. You see some contract and maybe you want to tally some scores because you do a vote and then people do that in a loop and they, they count up all these scores. You know, that's definitely, that makes it a lot easier, I think. But in, in all honesty, I, I don't think you need those features and maybe you could even go as far and say like you shouldn't have those features to build your smart contracts. The reason for that is if you have an unbound loop and, and you're looping through, you know, like, like a list and you're tallying the scores or something like that, that is not very gas efficient. That is not very runtime cost efficient. So what I mean by that is that when you send a contract call and you're calling into one of these smart contract functions, a different computer somewhere in this, in this decentralized network is going to execute that, right? So it's going to actually do some work in order to process that transaction. Right. And of course, they, they get paid for that, right? That's where the fees come in, the transaction fees. And then these other nodes will then verify that, that these executions were correct, right? But the fact that you're paying for it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be as efficient as possible. So I think in most cases, when I, when I saw a for loop in a smart contract, that's a loop that runs something a specific number of times, usually you don't need that. And it, and it really comes down to the, the smart contract design. And maybe that is where the computer science again comes in. Where it's like uh, you want to do as little as work as possible on on these uh, in these smart contracts and on these chains because uh, you yes you're paying for it you're paying for the runtime cost but also you want to make the chain as efficient as possible right you want to have as many transactions as possible as, as you can fit into a single block so I, I do think it's very important and anytime you 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 see something like like a follow up in there it's like like well you could have done that differently if you had just tracked it differently, right? You could have increased the tally every time someone sends in a vote instead of uh, counting up all the votes at the end, right? And then suddenly the contract becomes a lot simpler. So I think a lot of these features are not really necessary. So to getting in, into the, the second part of your question, which is are there certain smart contracts or decentralized applications you can build in solidity but not in clarity? Maybe theoretically, but in practice, I have not seen anything yet that really shows like, hey, this is something that we can efficiently do on EVM, but we cannot do it in Clarity or the Clarity Virtual Machine. I haven't seen it yet. And people have been building very complicated things, right? There's, there's a few projects out there that are that building very complex, like lending and borrowing, uh, automated market makers, right? And complicated financial algorithms. And they have not run into any foundational roadblock yet because of the language. So I don't want to say that doesn't exist. Maybe there's some sort of theorem where you can kind of show like, well, there's a certain sort of application that you can build in Solidity that will be de facto impossible in Clarity. Um, sure, that's that's possible. But but in practice, I, I haven't seen it yet. And that is, of course, uh, trying to avoid that whole discussion about uh, Turing completeness, non-Turing complete versus Turing complete, arguing on productivity. Like, is non-Turing complete necessarily productive? And a Turing complete language can do unproductive things like unbounded loops and whatnot. So it, it remains to be seen. But I'll just say if, if someone ever runs into that, I, I'd love to see it. So if there's a project out there that can be built in solidity, but not in clarity because of the language properties, I, I'd be really curious to see it. So it, it, it really sounds like then um, some of these things make the job of a developer technically easier. But the nature of blockchains, it's almost like you should be thinking differently as a developer because of the nature of assets that you're trying to secure and the block size limitations. You don't you almost want to give yourself guardrails and then build within those guardrails 
because it's it just makes more sense for the future of blockchains. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. You just have to be very cognizant of the the limitations and the restrictions that you have in building these systems. You have to translate that into your design philosophy. So, like I said, you know, there, there's there's many different ways to say implement a voting mechanism, but some are just more efficient than others. And um, that's what sets the good smart contract developer apart is that they can really think about these constraints that they have and, and how can I do this in, in as few instructions as possible to, to get this functionality that I want. That makes sense. Okay, I'm going to take a, a complete left turn then. And I want to jump into uh, to Rider. I mean, we, we watched Demo Day. Lewis killed it, gave a, a fantastic pitch for five minutes. I think everyone's hyped about whitelist want to get their devices what for people that the two people that listen to this podcast that don't know yet what is rider rider is the first hardware social wallet in the crypto space so as i mentioned a little bit earlier the idea behind rider is that we want to make crypto and, and also nfts and all these things as as easy and delightful to use as any other sort of payment methods that people are used to so like Apple Pay, for example, like why does that work? Well, it's just because you, you grab your phone, you press a button and you tap it on a, on a sales unit, right? And it just, payment magic happens. You don't, you don't really care about how that works. So that's what we're trying to solve it for Rider is like you have your, your crypto hardware device, you want to send a transaction, you just tap it and, and crypto magic happens. And, and you don't really, you know, most people won't really care how that works, but the verification is still there for those that want it. So uh, I would say that's that's the short summary of what Rider is. And then what it can do is, is of course, this face-to-face -face interactions. I can send you a token by tapping devices together. I can prove that I, that I control a certain wallet by tapping devices together. So why would that be useful? Say you're going to a crypto conference, your ticket is an NFT, someone's at the door with a conventional phone or a different Rider. You can just tap together and you can verify like, yes, you own that, that particular NFT. So you're allowed entry. Uh, and, and that's just scratching the surface of it. Very cool. Also, I love the term crypto magic. I'm, I'm still in that <laughs> for sure. Um, no, I, I, it makes sense. Like you, you see this big, this big push for access passes. And it didn't hit me till watching the pitch, but also what you just said, where you, it's a hardware social wallet. And most of crypto is online facing. And so like you have your, you have your ledger, your hardware wallet, and you keep that stored away. Like even you yeah. don't touch that except for the random occasion when you're ready to top it back up or whatever. And then you have your hot wallet that's in your browser and you're using that to do all the fancy things on Gamma or whatever. But you guys are bridging that gap where you're kind of taking the hardware thing, making it sexy so you can wear it and outside. It looks kind of like an Apple Watch device almost. But now you can take your crypto and use it like you would use your hot wallet. Yeah, and, and that's that's the nail on the hat. That's exactly what, what we're trying to do. So many amazing things are happening in crypto, but everyone always says like we're still really early, which is true. But we feel like the next step of mass adoption is of course like having having that experience, making that delightful to use and making crypto a part of your lifestyle, the way that a mobile phone, right? And this is what Apple did really well when they introduced the iPhone, is suddenly that became part of your lifestyle, right? It wasn't just a a tool that you use to communicate over a distance, but it became a lifestyle product, right? You could express yourself through it. You had it on you. You can customize it, right? With with apps, but also with a phone case, right? And it just became a part of you. So, so that's where we want to get with crypto. 
so that you can actually start using this in the day to day. And and like you just said, like, yeah, usually hot wallets, they're sort of tucked away and you only grab them when you need them, but also the experience, right? So imagine like, if you want to send me some tokens that you have on a hardware device, you got to sit down, you know, grab your laptop, find your USB cable, plug that in, punch in a pin, you know, with, with two buttons or something like that, fire up your wallet application. It's not a great process, right? Do you want to go through all of that every single time you send something and then it, a lot of people say no, so they just have a, a hot wallet in their browser or on their phone, right? And um, I think I think the reason for us that's a little bit different is also it's because our thesis on this crypto future is a little different. So people talk about the metaverse a lot, right? So they want to bring everything that is in the physical space onto the blockchain and into a digital world, right? So we see that with Meta, we see that with where different applications that build these virtual universes where you can trade all these goods and many of these things run in the blockchain, right? And we think that's very cool. And, and we definitely think that will be very big and has a very important place in society. But we think the metaverse is, is not just that. So for us, the metaverse is actually taking all that digital stuff that we have, taking that crypto stuff and bringing that into the physical space. So it's sort of the other way around. Um, um, so that has been very leading and and what we're trying to build up writer very cool um i'm curious i'm just trying to think about i'm kind of stuck between use cases and security because like the hardware wallet like the old the old one we'll call it the old hardware wallet you know mm-hmm. the ledgers that go in the in the shoe box um you know those are there for a reason because they typically they're going to hold your life savings or whatever and so you're not going to you know carry a, a big bag of gold just to the grocery store randomly in your back pocket and so is the way that you guys think about this is you would just put i don't want to say lower value things impl- i guess there's this tension for me as i'm thinking about it of like the things i take out in the world because i'm out in the world with it it's subjected to more risk whether it gets stolen or my phone gets stolen so I'm just curious about how, how you think about that with your device. And I'd love to bracket it too with mobile wallets on the phone. Like, yeah. is it similar in the, someone st- steals my iPhone and steals my writer? Is there more secure in a writer? I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm, I'm curious about this kind of tension of like, I'm taking my Megapont out into the world on my writer. And I love my Megapont. Yeah. So should it go on the ledger or should it go on the writer? You know? Yeah, great questions. I'll try to unpack that <laughs> one by one. <laughs> so first of all, I, I guess the amount of value that people bring on their person when they go out in public is really personal as well. You know, you see people walking around with $200,000 Rolex, another person with a $5 cost. I guess that's, that's personal choice, right? But I, I can say if you do bring valuables, digital valuables on your rider that you can be sure that it that it's uh, it's secure as can be because we are using the, the latest components that are available. Yes, we're using wireless technology, we're using NFC. So that's a that's a short range communications technology, right? That's that's in your phone and stuff. You might have used that if you tap on an RFID tag or something and your phone reads that, right? It's actually it's it's embedded everyday life. So if you use Apple Pay, it's kind of it's the same idea. Uh, so even though we use that, we're using cutting edge uh, components, the latest stuff that's out there, and that will be really secure. So even though we will transfer something like over the air like that, what you're still doing is you're sending in an unsigned transaction, and then the writer will sign that. And the private keys that are in that writer will never actually leave the device. So I would say you know that, that is on par, if not better, with other crypto hardware wallets that are already out there. 
And that's not to say some of these, these uh, how devices out there right now, they're developed with older generation components, or, or they might be susceptible to some sort of attacks, which we won't get into because it's too technical. But you, know, you have things like glitching attacks where you can mess with the voltages of chips, and, and that can lead to all sorts of interesting things. So we've taken all of that into consideration. And luckily, we have some very, very strong advisors that are helping us with that. But staying on topic, so that's the first aspect. The second aspect is also that um, if you want to manage your valuables also with a writer, but it's nothing that prevents you from having multiple wallets on this. So you could have a multi-signature wallet so that even if someone takes your writer, it's, it's just you know, cryptographically impossible to access those funds because it needs another wallet that is elsewhere that you might have at home, right? So you could, you could have an everyday wallet that is a, a single signature that is just on your writer and you can have a multi-sig that you share with someone or you have a second device at home. So that's okay as well. And then bring that, that stuff out there. Some people might wear their writer, other people might have it in their bag, right? So, so it's, it's a lifestyle choice that, that you make bringing a hardware device out in the open. Man, I got so many questions and I try to keep these short and concise to a half hour. So we're getting close-ish on time. But I'm curious, and this might not be the question for you, you're more the software guy, but how has it been, you know, software is hard, but hardware seems much harder. And so I'm curious about how has the process been of building, I mean, you're building in crypto, so you're already at kind of the bleeding edge, but now you're building a crypto wallet that also looks beautiful. Like how, how has that process been of being involved or, or watching the hardware process side? Yeah. So uh, when Lois and I started out, I, I was doing the tech side. Lois was doing the growth side. And uh, I'll just say, I'm definitely not a hardware person. So, so uh, I have no background in it. I have no formal education in it. I like to tinker. So, you know, I have, I have hardware stuff at home that I like to mess with and, and microcontrollers, see how that works. But um, I'm not a hardware person. You know, if, if you'd ask me to, to design a PCB, that's not something I can do. <laughs> doesn't mean I cannot help program it, right? I do work on the firmware that's written in C++, so I know what's up with that. But, but for the hardware itself, yeah, that's something very different. And uh, like you said, it's, it is hard. And we've heard that from many people. And we still thought like, well, we're going to try this on and, and see how far we get with it. But uh, no, in all seriousness, we, um, we can be very happy to have uh, the right people that are also working on this. So our hardware designer has 35 years plus of experience designing these kinds of products, really knows what's up and very good to communicate to. So when we're talking about also the firmware and sort of the resources and the things we need, he can translate that into specific components. It's like, oh, we should look at these products or these other products. And on top of that, we've also been working with, this was announced just recently during that demo day, is that we've been working with NXP semiconductors and they're one of the few chipset manufacturers in the world, really large, a spinoff from Philips. And um, they've been a great help as well. So they've been advising us on, on which chips to use and you know, how to translate that into our architecture. So on that front, we're pretty well taken care of. That's pretty good. We also have the, the funding that we need to, to get to the point where we want to be at this, this first iteration. And people ask us like, hey, are there any blockers right now? And, and honestly, <laughs> for, the past, for the past weeks, uh, we can't really think of any. So there's no blockers. We're just working. It just takes its time. And we're trying to do it very patiently and diligently because hardware is hard. But for now, we're on course and, and everything is going well. I guess looking at the biggest challenge then is um, 
it was tough finding the right people. So that, that took a while. Um, and we talked to many different parties and we're still talking to people. So we haven't figured everything out yet. So for example, how are we going to do mass production? Where are we going to do that? These kinds of questions, how are we going to deal with logistics? And uh, there's a lot of things that you don't even think about. For example, if your product has a battery in it, suddenly it becomes very difficult, if not impossible to ship it because there's so many regulations you have to follow. You know, th- these are things you don't know <laughs> when, when you get into it, right? And, and then, uh, yeah, the battery makes it atrocious. So what are you going to do? You're going to ship it without a battery and have people buy the battery separately. Or are you going to find a battery that is not subject to those regulations? That's also a possibility. But these are things that come on your path that, that nobody could have predicted. So the biggest challenge that we had at the beginning was finding the right people that could understand what we are doing, why we're doing it, and then actually help us design it uh, in terms of hardware. And the second question is now to build that entire pipeline so that once we have our, our designs, we've proven that it works, taking it to mass production. That's what we're still working on, but, um, but uh, it's going well so far. Love to hear it. Um, I'm going to, I got a couple more questions and there's one, you know, I think this device has real potential to onboard a ton of new crypto users. You know, it's, it seems it's nice to look at. Price point's not crazy. As long as the UI is nice, that's good. And there's this one, it's it's like, if you've dealt with it, you learn your lesson real fast if you lose mm. your private key. And I heard something about social recovery about mm. your about the Rider wallet. And I'm curious about just a little bit about how does that work? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And you know, this, this kind of ties into something that's at the core of crypto, right? Like, how do you securely manage your wallets? How do you back them up? And, and that also became part of our core thesis at the very beginning. It's like, how can we make this experience actually decent for people so that normal people understand what we're doing as well, right? And as I was saying earlier, like, hey, why does Apple Pay work? Because payment magic happens, right? We want to get that same magical experience that also ties into this recovery aspect because it's just as important as actually using your wallet on the day-to-day, right? So we have this concept that we're calling social recovery and we're sort of inspired by how people tap into their social graph for all sorts of issues they have in their personal life, right? They could speak to you, it could speak to anyone. If you have some sort of issue that you cannot deal with by yourself, you go to your family, you go to your friends, right? And having that same process in the recovery of your crypto wallet seems very natural. Because it's already something that you're used to having people in your social graph help you out, right? So what social recovery is, we wanted to come up with a recovery mechanism that takes all the crypto stuff out of it. So, so you know, you talk about seed phrases, private keys, right? And these were very cool and interesting developments. So I think seed phrases and the way that works is very important, very cool. But most people don't get that and they also don't really care, right? So what do people do is, well, they back up their wallet and they have their seed phrase in like a text file on their desktop, on a USB stick, right? They don't know how to encrypt a USB stick, so that's not happening. Or maybe they write it on a piece of paper and they put it in a drawer somewhere, right? And they write important on it. And then do you still remember where that is two or three years later? Well, I don't, right? And, and the same thing happened to me. I remember I had a backup of a wallet somewhere and I just couldn't for the life of me find where the seed phrase is and then you would say like well you should just do it better and you should be better educated but it's like well it, it happens to everyone it happens to the best of us and like how what is it going to look like 10 years down the line so these are all issues 
what social recovery is in its essence, as I said, tapping into your social graph is like, imagine that you have a writer and your friends or your families have writers too, and you want to create a backup of your wallet. What you simply do is you're going to sit down and you're there in the room with, you know, four other people. And you're going to say like, well, I want to split my wallet over a number of shares, say four shares. And I want at least uh, three to be able to recover that wallet. So you can set up like a three out of four. So you have a bit of a fault tolerance. And then what happens is you have your writer, you just tap it with all your friends. They all receive a share of your wallet. And then that's it. You have your social recovery set up. So now when you lose your writer, you can ring up your friends and say like, hey guys, could you guys come together? I lost my wallet. I, I just bought a new writer. You set it into recovery mode. You, you collect three of those shares or all four of them. And it just restores your wallet. You don't have to care about private keys, writing down seed phrases. We don't even use that terminology. We just say set up a social recovery. You know, we make that part of the standard flow so that you can have that set up. And, and that's what social recovery is in its essence. So you can securely recover your wallet without having to write anything down like that. You just use your social graph uh, to, to recover your wallet. And then you might say like, well, is that, is that not an issue if you, you split your wallet over so many keys and two of those people come together, but there is a way to cryptographically uh, split a wallet in a secure way. So that even if there's, say you do a, um, a five out of six, so you need five key, you need five uh, shares and four people get together, they, they will have no way to sort of guess that final piece to recover the wallet that is possible. That's social recovery, and we can use that and deploy that in many different situations. Very cool. It sounds like it's a lot more crypto magic going on. Yep, that's what we're trying to go for. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Last question for me, and I like to end on kind of a, a hopeful note, you know, forward looking. And so I'm imagining like Stacks is number three or four on market cap. Rider's been crushing execution for three years. What, is, what does that future look like in, in three years in the row where you guys have been, been, been going, everything's going swimmingly? Yeah, so uh, with, with Rider, uh, we, we do have an open source pledge. So we're going to make everything that we're building for Rider open source. So that includes the hardware design, the schematics, the firmware, all of that in due time, we're going to release to the public under permissive licenses. So we hope that people pick that up and take it to the next level and, and that they will buy the units from us so that we can continue doing what we're doing. That, that, you know, that's, that would be the signal for we're going in the right direction. But apart from that, we do have a few other things either in the pipeline or that we're thinking of that we want to create to make this ecosystem complete. So if everything goes perfectly and we're three years in, what we also hope to have is something that currently we're calling crypto tags. So these are very cheap low-level products that you can buy, kind of like RFID tags, if you've ever seen them. They're like little plastic circles, but with a specific crypto chip with some logic inside where you can use that to build physical NFTs, which means that you could use that to, to track something logistically or say you're, you're a budding artist and you want to uh, attach your, your physical artwork to a blockchain, you could buy these tags, you could put them in there and you could scan them and then you could ship them online and the people who receive them can scan them. And then the, the act of scanning is actually claiming the NFT on chain. So it works a little bit differently cryptographically. Many applications for that. That's that's something that we're, we're seriously looking at and hoping to release within that time frame. And then beyond that, we have a few ideas on, on how to bring some more equity into voting systems and DAOs and physical spaces as well. And we hope that Ryder can make that happen 
where you know if, if you look at a basic governance DAO, right, one token equals one vote. Well, imagine if we could do something where we say one writer equals one vote, and suddenly you get a whole different governance structure, and then translating that into more physical spaces and more interesting things. So imagine that you go to a co-working space, you grab the door handle of that place, and it just automatically unlocks because it connects to your writer. It sends some sort of proof like, hey, I own this wallet. And then the system can check like, are you stacking this many tokens for this co-working space? Or do you have this many Miami coins, right? And if that is the case, the door unlocks, you get in, you can use the facility. So those are all the things that excite us. And and hopefully we can work towards all of that. I love it. The last question, you just dropped like the biggest can of worms. So everyone's just going to be like, (laughs) they're going to be in your DMs freaking out. I can totally see like supply chain, all those things, proof of attendance. Um, yeah, exactly. That, that sounds huge. Okay, last. I mean, any closing thoughts or things that I didn't I didn't cover? I think that that pretty much settles it. So uh, yeah, as you said, I, I think most people in the ecosystem will have heard of Rider by now. But if they haven't, they're more than happy to reach out to us, and we try to be very open. So if anyone is interested in being involved in a shape or form they they can always yeah reach out or or join the discord or just check out the website that we love to collaborate with anyone what's the best resources to go to to point them to from the website you can go anywhere so if you go to writer.id so writer with a y uh, you can find everything there you can find a link to the discord there or if you're already in the stacks discord it'll be easy to find myself or lois and just reach out. So I guess my final thought is come say hello if, if you're interested and if you want to be involved. We're very open, just like the sex ecosystem. Love it. Oh, I didn't, I, this wasn't one of my questions. I'm not sure why it wasn't. Is there any update on timeline when, when it's going to drop? Uh, good question. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so taking a very careful approach. So uh, what we're doing is before we get to the consumer version of the writer, we have what we call a dev kit that we're working on. So the dev kit is, you can imagine like an exploded view version of the writer. So it will have all the final components or it's close enough and it'll be fully functional and it'll be like a, a nice PCB with everything on it that you can you can start working with, right? So remember when Apple uh, came out with the M1, they had these dev kits, these Mac minis that you could already start working with it early. So we're doing the exact same thing. We're creating a, a dev kit for the writer. And this helps us to have a proof of concept before we dive in and start spending the big bucks producing the consumer version, right? So that's coming up first. And we're hoping to get that out like somewhere Q3. We know that's that's pretty much coming up very soon. And then from there, it's going to be the consumer version. So maybe, you know, add, add a few months on top of that and then we'll see what happens. The dev kits are obtainable and that goes through the NFT pre-sale that we're doing. So we're doing a pre-sale, a sort of a fundraiser, you can get an early rider at a discount. And if you pledge a little bit more, you can also get a dev kit and all the goodies. So I would say if you want to get your hands on a rider device as soon as possible, that would be the way to go. And you can also find that on the website or reach out to Lois, who has been working on all of that, these campaigns and, and, and the whitelist process for the NFT pre-sale and whatnot. Yeah, that's that's the timeline. Little little broad, but... but um, um, there, there are lots of unknowns with hardware. So you know, it's not just like building the software and then getting it out there. But suddenly we run into a shortage for a specific component. We need to find an alternative component. So it's hard to put a specific date on it, but yeah, we're working diligently. So Q3 Perfect. for the dev kit, that's that's what we're aiming for. Okay. 
it'll be done and the, and when the Q3. It's done. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so maybe there's a potential people for a Christmas writer, but TBD, <laughs> maybe. But it's it's gonna when it's time to come out, it's gonna be polished, it's gonna be done, and yeah. Okay, so you can go to writer.id to learn more. Man, I mean, we covered a lot, Marvin. This was this was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Welcome to Built on Bitcoin. I know that things don't always go your way, but I'll be right here waiting. I've been waiting now. I've been trying to figure out a way to make it out. Make it out, cause I don't think about it.